what would cause David to dance like a fool, like a madman, the king of the whole country. It would be like seeing President Clinton going down the mall between the Washington Memorial and the Lincoln Memorial, whirling and twirling all alone, saying, praise Jesus. It's a little hard to picture. It's hard to picture George Bush doing it. Maybe Jimmy Carter, you never know. But that's what he did. Why? What would cause a person to do something that silly? Two words. Total surrender. Total surrender. There are two types of surrendering. One is when an overwhelming armed force comes against another force and the superior force crushes the first one and before they're completely annihilated, they surrender. We saw that happen in the Gulf War. The incredible firepower of the United States military was crushing the Iraqi army. And they surrendered. They, they were not surrendering happily, except that they were glad to have their lives spared. There was humiliation. There was fear. But there was no choice except death or surrender. That, that's one type of surrender. There's another type. I've experienced a second type. I've never been in warfare, so I've not experienced the former. It's a little different. In some ways, it's quite scary, though. It's when a man or a woman surrenders their life to one another. We call it marriage. It's a scary commitment. It's frightening. But it's frightening in a different way. The person doesn't surrender because their, their girlfriend or their boyfriend is so strong and powerful they might die if they don't. They surrender in the sense of abandoning themselves because they've been seized and gripped by the love of the other person and they begin to believe in it. And they say, this is the kind of person I wish to surrender to. And they both surrender to one another, at least in a healthy situation. So there's the surrender of love. There's the surrender of force. I want to talk about three people this morning. Two from biblical history and one from modern history that can illustrate this point. You know, we started by saying, looking at Luke's parable on the sower. And I told you something wrong last week. And one of you pointed it out to me and I appreciated that. I said that Jesus said the characteristic between a person who is fruitful and, and grows a large crop for the kingdom of God, the difference between that person and a person who only produces a small crop is a good and a noble heart. Actually, that wasn't quite right. The point still holds. But in Luke's gospel, he says the person of the good and noble heart is the person who produces a crop. He doesn't make the distinction between a small crop and a large crop, and that was pointed out to me, and I appreciate that. But Jesus says we're to be developing good and noble hearts. And I want to put a, a simple thesis before you this morning, that a good and noble heart is a heart that is completely surrendered to the rule of Jesus Christ. 
today, tomorrow, and forever. Abraham was a man who hadn't heard about Moses, hadn't heard about the Ten Commandments. Those things hadn't happened yet. Didn't know about the people of Israel because his children would start the nation of Israel. It was from him that all, it all began, he and Sarah. And God said something to him very strange. He said, if you'll leave your country and just take off, I will show you a place you're to go. And so he did it. And it's not like he had the Bible to read or he had all of church history to look back on and say how faithful God had been to all the people. He, he didn't have those advantages. But he got up and he did it anyway. And he was, uh, he was a wealthy man. He had a lot of good. So he, he got them all together and he took his nephew with him, Lot, and, and they just took off. And I can imagine Lot saying, now, Uncle, exactly where is it again now we're going? Are, are we getting close yet? Well, I don't know. We're just going to go until the Lord shows me. That's foolish. But that's just the beginning of foolish things that Abraham did out of his surrender to God. God told him that he would have a son, yet his wife was barren for many, many years and went past the age where women can have children. And he still was trying to believe that God would do it. Then he and his wife devised a plan to sort of short-circuit it. And he took on a second wife and had a child by her, Isaac, thinking that maybe this was the way God would do it. Maybe he'd help God out just a little bit. But you know the story. Sarah became pregnant way, way past the normal time of bearing children. And she bore a son. And they lived happily as a family. They enjoyed each other. This was his only son. This was Isaac. He could see his face in Isaac's face. He could see his gestures and Isaac's gestures. And then one night, and he was probably always thanking the Lord that God was not like those other idols of the other countries because those other gods would ask for strange things like to have the firstborn child of the family go up to some sort of makeshift temple, have their throat slit and be offered as a sacrifice to Moloch, for example, or to Baal. And probably in the back of, of Abraham's mind, he thought, thank heavens, the God I'm following doesn't ask those things. But then one night, the very God he'd followed, the very God he had obeyed and come to this place for, spoke to him and said, I want you to take Isaac to a mountain I'll show you. And I want you to offer him there as a sacrifice to me. Abraham had a night to think about it. He didn't have to do it. He could have said it was just indigestion. It was a bad dream. Uh, it was, uh, you know, something I ate. I, surely God would not do that. Because God had promised to make a great nation of Abraham's family, and yet this was the only heir. How could God then take the very channel for his promise to come true that Abraham's children would be like the stars in the sky. How could he do that? How could he ask Abraham to kill his own son and thus cut off the promise? Probably Abraham wasn't thinking, well, God's too nice to do that sort of thing because the gods of the other people didn't seem too nice to do that. So he thought, I guess I'll have to do it. He chose to do it. It says he rose early in the morning and he took his son and he, and he took some servants, and they went to a mountain that God showed him. 
And he got his son ready for the sacrifice. Now, his son was not a little baby son at this point. He was probably an adolescent. I know that my teenage sons at about 16 or 17 could take me down. But at that point, I also held the car keys, so I still had some power left. But physically, they could, they could take me down at 16 or 17. Physically, I'm quite sure that Isaac could have taken Abraham down. And he says to his dad as they're going up toward the mountain, Now, Father, we're going to go worship on that mountain. Is that right? And he says, Yeah, that's right. Well, let's see. I see the wood because I'm carrying that on my shoulders for you. And I see the fire. And what he meant by that was they would carry it in a pot, coals. They didn't have matches or big lighters and things like that. So they'd carry a little pot with coals. And he said, I see the fire. I see the knife. I, you know, uh, I got the wood here. They're just, uh, there's a detail missing here. Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And in faith and some subtlety, Abraham says, my son, God will supply the lamb for the sacrifice. Now, this didn't happen in a minute. This didn't happen in 10 minutes. This happened over a fairly extended time period where you get the wood down and you pile it up and you get it so it's just right. And, and you get the fire over here and you get the knife out and you make sure it's sharpening. And, and Isaac is looking around for the lamb. And he's maybe beginning to realize he is the lamb. And it says that Abraham bound his son, Isaac. After he chopped the wood, after he got the fire ready, after he placed the wood in order, he then tied Isaac up and laid him on the altar over the wood. Why would he do this? This is crazy. Killing your own son because God told you to? Why would he do something like this? Total surrender. We're told later in the New Testament, interpreting this, that Abraham had faith in God, so much so that he believed that if he would plunge the knife into his own son, slit his throat on that wood, light the fire, God would miraculously somehow bring him back to life. That was the hope that sustained him, apparently. That one little phrase, he tied Isaac up. I, I think Isaac had to let his father tie him up. I don't think I, I, Abraham could have done it on his own. I think Isaac had to put his trust in his father, just the way Abraham was putting his trust in God the Father. And he gets out the knife. And I, you know, most of us know how the story ends. Abraham didn't. Nor did Isaac. And just as he lifted his hand to take the knife and plunge it into the, the, the body of his own dear son, the body that he'd put to bed as a little child, that, that wonderful, tender, young man's body, as he got the knife ready to stab him with it, to slit his throat open, an angel of the Lord called from heaven. Abraham, Abraham, lay down the knife. Don't hurt the lad in any way. 
For I know now that God is first in your life. For you have not withheld even your beloved son. And then, of course, they looked and a ram was caught in the thicket. And indeed, God had provided. And the name of that mountain, they said, was the mount on which the Lord provided. Some have even suggested it might have been the mountain that many hundreds and many thousands of years later, Jesus was actually crucified on, where God supplied the true lamb. A father, his only son, dying as a sacrifice. Sounds quite familiar, doesn't it? God the Father loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. Gave. Sacrificed. Why would he do that? Total surrender. That's why. Absolute total surrender. I'd like to look at a second person this morning. I'd like to look at the Apostle Paul. You know, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, excuse me, I have a bit of a cold, so I'm going to have to keep drinking a little bit. Cotton mouth. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, listen to the way he describes himself in several different places. In the very first verse, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's, that's how he thinks of himself. We might say today, Paul, an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul, one who's been sent, that's what apostle means, been sent by God. He's an apostle. He's an ambassador. He's here to represent God. That's one way Paul thought of himself. But, you know, prior to this some uh, number of years, Paul was Saul. And Saul thought of himself as the person who was going to crush every believer in Jesus he could. So this tremendous change had already happened in his life. He was on his way, as you remember, to persecute and kill Christians. And he had been there at the killing of Stephen. And he'd held the coats of the people so that they could fling the stones as hard as they could and not be encumbered by the loose garments that they wore. He held them and watched Stephen bleed into a, this bloody pulp in the midst of a pile of rocks. And he saw Stephen look up into heaven, his face looking like an angel, we're told, and say, Father, forgive them. And then on that road to Damascus to find some more believers to kill or to put in prison, Jesus Christ struck him down. Jesus Christ blinded him, literally. Jesus Christ appeared to him in a way that he could never shake again. And Jesus Christ was a terrifying sight to him because he was out persecuting the very people who said they were following this Jesus. And then in this flashing light, he sees Jesus, and he hears this voice, and, and Jesus says, Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Well, Saul was a persecutor before he was the apostle. But he also says something else about himself here. He says, An apostle of Christ Jesus, in verse 1 of chapter 1. And then in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says this, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. That's interesting. Actually, when Paul was writing this, he was chained to a Roman guard, most likely. He was a prisoner of Rome. He says, no, 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 I'm a prisoner of Jesus. You see, a prisoner is somebody who's completely captivated, literally. And he says, that's what I am. I am completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. I am entrapped by him. It's sort of like saying, I'm entrapped by love. 
You know, I love chocolate chip cookies a lot. Toll House, just the right ones. My mom is the only one who makes them right. And to this day, when I go into the house, my mom's house, she's 84 years old, I know right where the cookie jar is. It's been there for 49 years, in my memory anyway. And I go over there, we drive down, I usually get there about 10 o'clock at night, and, and we walk in, I give them a hug, and then I go for the cookie jar. I get the milk out, we sit down. When Paul says, you know, I, I, I'm a prisoner for Jesus, I, I'm a prisoner for the love of God in a sense, it's like saying, I'm a prisoner to those Toll House cookies. Hallelujah. I mean, that's great. <laughs> but he was captivated, seized, put in prison, a prison of love, where he could, went to school in a prison of love where he began to think lovingly, act lovingly, feel lovingly, and not some mishmash sort of love, but the love of Jesus Christ, which he says in this same book, he's praying that all believers would begin to just grasp the unfathomable, the unfathomable, that's a tough one, riches of the love of Christ, to know how high it is and wide and long and deep. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. But then he says something else. He says, I'm a prisoner for the Lord, in verse 1. He's a prisoner of the Lord in chapter 3. He's a prisoner for the Lord i.e. the Romans have chained him and he's a prisoner for having done some foolish things. Like preaching that Jesus rose from the dead when people didn't want to hear it and it caused a riot. And he just kept preaching. Like preaching to governors and kings when he was brought before them and they had the power of life and death over him. He just proclaimed one thing and one thing only, Jesus Christ. He was totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. On one of his trips, as you stu have studied in your New Testament class, he was stoned, just like Stephen had been stoned, and he was stoned so bad, rocks thrown at him, blood everywhere, they left him for dead. And then he crawls out of the pile of rocks. You can see the rocks kind of clunk, 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 and the bruises and the blood, and he gets back up and he walks right back into the city. It's foolish. He was warned not to go back to Jerusalem on at least two different occasions by the Ephesian elders and by another group of church leaders and by a prophet. They said, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be killed. You will suffer. One of them took Paul's belt off and he tied his own hands up with it. He said, this is what's going to happen to the man who wears this belt if he goes to Jerusalem. And Paul says, look, I'm willing to die if I have to go to Jerusalem because I'm following Christ. That's foolish. He didn't have to go to Jerusalem. He could have stayed and preached up in Europe a little more. He could have even said it was for the betterment of the gospel. Why did he do these things? Two words. He was totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. Third person I want to talk about. You've heard me talk about a fair amount. And during this spring semester, I'm going to show you some video clips from this person's life. We're going to see one here in a minute. And that's Mother Teresa, who died this last year. Now, I, I'm a Protestant. That's my background. I'm a Protestant minister. So I don't agree with every single theological turn in Mother Teresa's thinking. If I did, I'd probably be Roman Catholic. 
and she wouldn't believe in everything I believe. But in the essentials, we're, we would be very similar in terms of our belief system. Mother Teresa was born in Albania. Her husband, I mean, excuse me, her father was assassinated for being a nationalist. Her mother and her brother and sister lived very poorly after that. But by 18 years old, Agnes, that's her real name, Agnes Gongsa Bojangsu, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but she decided she wanted to totally surrender to God. And so in her background, that meant to become a nun. So she became a nun. She studied in Ireland, and it was on her heart to go to India. Why? Why? What a foolish thing. Why would somebody go from Albania to India? I mean, couldn't you much more effectively work right within your own context? I could build a big case why Mother Teresa should have never left Albania. She said she did it because Jesus told her. It's tough to argue with that. But it does seem kind of foolish. She didn't know how to speak Hindi. She probably never studied Hinduism or Buddhism. I bet she went to India. And most people think she started working with the poorest of the poor right away. She didn't. She taught English until she was about 38 years old at a very ritzy girls' school for rich Indian young women. In fact, she became the principal of that school. And many people say, well, she saw the poverty of the poor and her heart was moved and she went out to them. Well, I'm sure she did see the poverty of the poor. I'm sure she, her heart did go out to them. But she doesn't say that that's why she gave the next 43 years of her life to serving the poorest of the poor. She says it's because Jesus told her to. She said, she can, I can tell you when it happened. It happened on a train between these two cities, Calcutta and Darjeeling. Jesus told me, leave the school and go minister to the poorest of the poor. She went to her superiors, procured their blessing to do this, and she began with nothing. She picked up one dying man on the street, took him in, and he died with her love surrounding him. Then she went back out and picked up a second one, then she picked up a third one, then she picked up a fourth one, and then some of her, some of her prior students began doing it with her. And then some of them totally surrendered to Christ and to this work. And then more of them did. And then more of them did. And by the time of her death, there were thousands of young women, Americans included, who had given their life not only to Jesus Christ, but also to this work of working with the poorest of the poor. Why would people do this? Total surrender. Complete surrender to Jesus Christ. That's why David danced like David danced. That's why Abraham lifted up the knife. That's why Paul spent the, the last 30 years of his life going from town to town on, on those dry, dusty roads and getting in shipwrecks and getting beaten and spending more time in prison than, than any of us will ever probably spend. Because he was captivated by Jesus Christ and he surrendered. Now, the kind of surrender this is has both elements. Remember at the beginning of the talk, I told you there was the kind of surrender where an overwhelming force confronts you and you surrender. And there's the kind where it's, it's, it's love that you're surrendering to. And I believe in Jesus Christ. It's both. Our God is a consuming fire, we're told in Hebrews. This is not a weak Jesus Christ you give your life to. And it's a terrifying prospect not to. 
total surrender. We're going to close chapel this morning by watching about a four-minute film clip from an award-winning documentary on the life of Mother Teresa. They followed her around for about a year, and they just filmed her in natural situations. The one we're going to see today is less completely natural because part of it's an interview with her. She has a fairly thick accent. She speaks English. You'll have to listen hard to understand it. Uh, and if some of you on the edges over here, I think you all can see, but if you, if you can't, feel free to just come up here and sit on the floor. Okay? Listen to the words very carefully, and then I'll close chapel after this. Total surrender. Holiness is not the luxury of the few. It's the simple duty of every person. We've been created to be Christ-like. That's holy. But there's only one way to go, and that's to say yes to Jesus. As she said on the film, to be cut to pieces, and yet to have every piece belong to Jesus. To say yes to Jesus every day and every minute, so that at the end of your life and my life, we may say, I've never said no to Jesus, and I'm not going to start now. Let's pray. Father, give us the desire, the burning desire to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ completely. The burning desire to be holy, to be Christ like Christ in every way, shape, and form in our circumstance, that he might live his life through us. Give us the freedom that comes from surrender. In Jesus' name.